Ukraine and parts of Russia are often called the breadbasket of Europe, and that breadbasket is responsible for a huge chunk of the global wheat supply in particular, that wheat tending to be shipped to nearby African and Middle Eastern countries alongside European neighbors, including many of the most food-insecure parts of the world, like Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Haiti, Nigeria, Pakistan, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. Many of these countries get a significant portion of their fundamental food supplies from global programs like those run by the United Nations. Such programs buy up large quantities of basics like wheat and other grains and then distribute those basics to regions that are experiencing food insecurity due to famine, warfare, or general instability governments that fail to provide for their people, areas in which sectarian or civil conflicts reduce agricultural production, that sort of thing. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been devastating already into the fourth month because the supply chains that typically deliver such food resources have been severed or entangled in such a way that existing supplies aren't getting to where they need to go. Russia's expulsion from some portions of the global economy is partly to blame for this, and Ukraine's inability to ship the grain it's already harvested is another part of the problem. Some of that unshipped grain is being held by Russia, which is unsuccessfully so far, trying to sell it after having captured it, and some of which is still held by Ukrainians, as of the day I'm recording this at least, but cannot be shipped via the usual Black Sea ports, which are currently blockaded by Russian forces. So they're in the process, with the help of Western allies, of figuring out how to ship large quantities of hard-to-move food resources overland instead, ultimately getting those resources to the usual buyers, including those food programs, which in turn need to get them to these often hard-to-reach, often landlocked nations. And in the meantime, some of these regions, the usual recipients of these supplies, are facing food crises ranging from Egypt's price increases on fundamental bread products that citizens take for granted will always be cheap and widely available, which some analysts worry could tip the region into instability, as that has nudged the government into crisis previously, to the amplification of regional famine, like the one in northern Ethiopia, where a long-simmering conflict with separatist forces has left locals devastated and abused, but also starving. Because those forces have soaked up all their food resources and prevented aid from getting in for years, and at the same time kept locals from engaging in food-producing work, efforts that were already limited by years of drought. And now that they're allowing aid workers to enter these war-plagued regions, there's little or no food aid available for them to deliver. So in addition to the alleged war crimes and other sorts of devastation occurring in Ukraine as Russia's invasion continues, the conflict is leading to other sorts of devastation because of how integrated the world and its production has become and because of how specialization works. Some regions are great at producing things like grain, so they do that. And other regions that need grain do whatever it is they're good at and more or less trade those goods or services for the grain they need. In normal times, this works great, but when things go abnormal for a while, the whole complex web of relationships can fall into discord pretty quickly. 
grain and food oil and energy-related resources like gas and petroleum are stealing the spotlight. Rightly, I would argue, because of how potently their absence is felt locally and throughout the world. People are starving to death, and many more will likely starve to death, before these supply chains are rerouted and the resource producers are able to go back to work. And that's a very big deal, a serious human welfare issue that we should all be aware of and thinking about as we move forward. There are other aspects of this story that are important, though, but which are getting relatively less attention because of how comparably niche they are. And though that nicheness means they are secondary concerns at the moment, because pretty much everything is and arguably should be a secondary concern compared to large numbers of people starving to death because of human-made and human-amplified catastrophes, despite that current prioritization, they likely won't remain niche issues for long. What I'd like to talk about today is one such shortage that will likely become a more pressing issue in the very near future. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Russia, especially eastern Russia, where there aren't too many big cities and much of the landscape is either vast swaths of forest or permafrost-laden nature, or expanses of mine-riddled plains and mountains, produces a lot of raw materials. It is famously overloaded with fossil fuel wealth, which is part of why Europe is going through a significant energy crisis right now, because so much of their natural gas, some of their oil too, but especially their gas, comes from Russia. And they're in the process of trying to wean themselves off that gas, and all gas, ultimately, as they shift toward renewable energy sources. But they're not there yet, and it'll be years before they make real progress on the matter. So for the time being, their decision to stand behind Ukraine and slap abundant sanctions and regulations on Russia has meant unstable energy supplies, which in some cases have either been intentionally shut down on Europe's end or have dried up because of counter-sanctions by Russia's government. They turned off the tap on their end. Russia also, though, produces a whole lot of raw mineral wealth, about 10% of the world's Nickel, a material that is vital for the production of stainless steel, wires of all kinds, a bunch of other alloys used for various specialty purposes, and for batteries, the latter of which is becoming increasingly important as electric vehicle production spins up and large batteries are produced for utility-scale purposes. About 10% of that resource globally comes from Russian mines, and around 37% of the world's total palladium supply Palladium being used as an investment vehicle, much like gold, but also in catalytic converters, which are the part of a typical gas-burning vehicle's exhaust system that strips out about 90% of the harmful gases that would otherwise be spewed into the air, but which can also be found in electronics, medicine, groundwater treatment, and in the production of hydrogen. Several of those processes, again, increasingly necessary as the world tries to go green energy-wise. 37% of that material comes from Russia as well, as of 2021. Other supply shortages, like vodka, are easier to replace, either with vodka made elsewhere in the world, and there's plenty of that available, or with other spirits. 
It may suck if you really want Russian vodka and can't get it, but it's not the end of the world, and you can probably still have fun sipping on whiskey or mezcal or vodka made in Illinois, which is where Smirnoff is made. Grains like wheat can also be produced in many places around the world, and in fact, a lot of second- and third-tier suppliers are stepping in to fill the wheat gaps left by Ukraine and Russia on the international market. This increase in production takes time, though, and it requires that some of these areas make dramatic pivots from other sorts of production, like away from soybeans to make room for more wheat, or that they cut up forests to make more cropland, or redesignate land that was going to be used for housing or other types of development for the planting of more crops. There are sacrifices, then, and an uncomfortable chunk of time between the beginning of recalibration efforts and the ultimate arrival of wheat from these new production locations onto the global market, and that wheat might cost more to produce and buy and ship to where it needs to go. But this is almost certainly a temporary shortage, and in some cases, for some purposes at least, wheat can also be replaced by other grains. There are two primary types of shortage emerging from this invasion and from similar conflicts and loci of devastation around the world then. Those that are predicated on absolute scarcity because the resources in question are only available in specific locations, harvested from mines or other local resources. And then there are things that have generally been produced in a particular area and are thus most easily and inexpensively produced there moving forward as well, because the locals are specialized in that production. Supply chains already exist to move those products from that area to where the customers are, and because the infrastructure is already built to extract or produce those resources efficiently. But those resources could also be made elsewhere if new investments were made, new infrastructure built, new people trained, and so on. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Recode, and it's entitled The Neon Shortage is a Bad Sign, with the subtitle Russia's War Against Ukraine Has Ramifications for the Chips That Power All Sorts of Tech. Neon is a noble gas. That means it has full electron orbitals, which means, if it's been a while since you took a science class, that it is non-reactive. It's not lending or trying to steal electrons from anything that it comes into contact with. So you can put neon in a room with just about anything else, and it won't do anything to that other stuff. And that other stuff won't do anything to neon. It won't combine to make a new substance, and it won't corrode anything. It's inert. That means neon is very useful for purposes in which you're trying to keep stuff unmessed with, and ensuring that things are unmessed with is one of the most vital aspects of the semiconductor manufacturing industry, because semiconductors are produced using special lasers that allow very small patterns to be carved into the chips. Now, there's a lot of interesting complexity in this space, and neon is just one ingredient in the larger mix required to use these specialized lasers, which are also used for medical applications, but increasingly vital for semiconductors because they are the only laser capable of making the tiniest possible incisions required for modern applications. Such lasers are called deep ultraviolet, or DUV, lasers. So without neon, you cannot use these DUV lasers. There's no acceptable substance that serves to replace it currently. And without these lasers, you cannot make microchips. 
Now, neon is not a resource like oil or palladium. It is not mined, and it isn't only available in some parts of the world. Neon is part of the air we breathe, so it is abundant in the sense that there is a practically infinite amount of it in our atmosphere. Unfortunately, the concentration of neon in the air is about 0.0018%, which is not much. For comparison, the air we breathe is about 78% nitrogen and about 21% oxygen. The remaining 1% is made up of mostly argon at about 0.93%, followed by carbon dioxide and then trace amounts of other gases, including neon. So we've got a lot of neon around us, but it's tricky to refine because there's so little of it per unit of air. We have to process a whole lot of air to get just a tiny bit of neon, and that refining process is therefore somewhat specialized. One way to get more neon per unit of air is to build absolutely massive air separation plants, but the economics behind neon don't readily support the construction of such plants in most cases. They cost a lot to build. They are just massive buildings, and it would take ages to recoup that expenditure to build such buildings. As a consequence, the biggest and longest-lasting neon distilling apparatuses tend to be attached to air-refining infrastructure that's built for other purposes, like, for instance, steel production, which has more favorable economics for recouping those giant building investment costs. Because of this economic reality, two of the world's biggest neon producers are located in Ukraine, piggybacking off infrastructure that exists for other purposes, which gives them a scale advantage, but also a feedstock advantage. They're able to process air that is more heavily loaded with neon because of those other steel-making activities, and able to distill that neon using giant air separation plants that are already being used for those other purposes. There are efforts to produce smaller, more modular air refinement units around the world, but this is still in the R&D phase at the moment. And again, this is an issue mostly just because of that gap between previous production levels and all the global infrastructure and supply chains plugged into these existing Ukrainian production hubs. And whenever it is we're able to either turn those back on and plug those back in at full capacity or replace them with something else. In between, there is and will continue to be a global neon supply shortage, and that'll raise the price of neon on the global market, but also lead to a dearth of available neon, which could in turn result in the temporary shutdown or outright closing of some facilities that rely upon this inert gas to function. And again, the most neon-hungry use case for this substance right now is the manufacturing of semiconductors. Shutdowns and closures stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic have already sent ripples through the global semiconductor supply chain, which has left it fractured and upended, with producers struggling to get their machinery and workers back online so they can start churning out their wares again and begin rebuilding those tangled and mangled supply chains. But those earlier and ongoing ripples have been felt throughout the global economy, causing car companies to shut down or truncate production, computer and smartphone and other device manufacturers to reduce their orders or simply not release new products at their usual cadence, and has increased the prices of all of these things, essentially anything with a chip in it, which is a shocking number of products in 2022. 
That, in turn, has contributed to what's felt by the consumer as inflation. Because our cars and phones and toasters and washing machines all have chips in them that are suddenly more expensive and harder to get. Much like oil and other energy resources tend to inflate the price of everything, because pretty much everything needs to be shipped and thus has oil or gas costs associated with it, so too does a fundamental component category, like semiconductors, inflate the price of everything when their costs go up. And when the cost of neon, a fundamental component of the production of semiconductors, goes up, that triggers the same for everything downstream along the production and sales chain. So this inert, oft-ignored gas that's in the air we breathe all day every day is substantially contributing to global shortages of a staggering number of products and the wave of inflationary pressures on most economies around the world right now. And this problem, much like the aforementioned food shortages resulting from a depletion of fundamental aspects of that industry, doesn't have a good short-term solution. Eventually, just like with wheat, someone else will step in with new infrastructure and know-how in another part of the world. And or the facilities in Ukraine will go back online at their usual levels. But until that happens, and neither is likely to happen soon, we've got a bottleneck in our global supply chain network without an obvious, quick remedy that'll continue to influence the global economy in numerous, mostly negative ways. Notably, this isn't the first time we've seen a neon supply crunch. Back in 2014, when Russia essentially invaded and annexed Crimea, which is also part of Ukraine, companies around the world started to figure out methods by which they could replace some of their neon use with other chemicals, or ways in which they could use different lasers or shorter bursts of the same lasers, allowing them to cut back on how much neon they use while continuing to operate at essentially the same scale. The fear was that Russia would keep messing with Ukraine in this way, and that would result in less neon production. And their fears were right on the mark, as it turns out, though it took about eight years for those concerns to fully manifest. Neon recycling systems were also posited as a potential means of dealing with shortages back then. And though some were installed, and the neon recycling industry became a real-deal thing after having floated around as a theory and a novelty for a while, following that annexation of Crimea, they are still relatively rare and expensive and definitely a second-best option compared to getting freshly refined neon from the usual facilities. One would assume that in most cases, more expensive recycled neon is better than simply shutting down manufacturing hubs or going out of business, but possibly not in all cases. So while there's a chance these efforts will spin up and become more cost-effective with scale, at the moment, they also are not a silver bullet solution for this neon shortage problem. What we are likely to see for the next few years, then, are continued efforts to spread out neon-related risk by investing in new production hubs globally, alongside recycling and efficiency efforts meant to allow the current stock to go further. But we will also continue to see shortages and price increases on everything that touches neon, which means most technologies of any shape or size, and some facets of medicine and manufacturing that rely upon this gas for mostly, but not exclusively, laser-wielding purposes. Things could get much worse before they get better, too. Current industry estimates show that there's somewhere between one and six months' worth of neon in reserves globally.
Which means while things are already bad in the sense that manufacturers are shutting down and those that are still operating are increasing the price of much of what they're producing, we could see a lot more total closures and products disappearing from shelves in the near future if previous norms don't return or some other stopgap solution isn't identified and broadly deployed soon. book I'd like to recommend today is called A History of Modern Poetry, Volume 1, From the 1890s to the High Modernist Mode by David Perkins. Over the past half a year or so, I've been diving deep into poetry, as it's something that I've always been interested in from a distance, but didn't know enough about to really delve into, either in terms of appreciating it properly or in terms of writing my own, which is something that I wanted to dabble with. One of the first books in the initial pile of books that I gathered up to begin that investigation process, that learning process, was this one, A History of Modern Poetry, Volume 1. And it does not disappoint, especially in terms of demonstrating where modern poetry came from. And it bypasses a lot of the earlier tricky bits, which are things that are also valuable to know about, but which can also slow people down, I think. Because before the 1890s, the language used and the forms used in poetry can be a bit obscure and even unintelligible to a certain degree, while starting from the late 19th century begins in an era where we are just beginning to deploy electricity and the modern world is coming into being, even if a lot of the language and concepts and topics are still very much of an earlier age. And if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of A History of Modern Poetry, Volume 1, and I'm just about to start Volume 2 myself, hopefully it's as good as the first one, by David Perkins. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.